You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Helene Wecker is the author of The Gollum and the Ginny. Her new novel is The Hidden Palace. Thank you for joining me, Helene. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I have to wonder, when it, this book, the new book, is so immersive and so detailed and, and puts you in the place so much. And I started to think that back when you first wrote The Gollum and the Ginny, you decided to set the novel in, you know, New York of at circa 1900. This must have been a very big decision for you because you it, it required must have required so much scholarship and, and research. Talk about making the decision. That's a huge uh, reach to to put upon yourself. Well. Yeah, I did. It's one of those things where if I'd realized what I was getting into, I might not have done it. So it's probably a good thing uh, that I had no idea what I was doing at the very beginning, um, because I thought that I was writing a short story. Um, you know, I started this back when, uh, when I was a um, an MFA student at Columbia, and I was working on a group of um, very realist short stories um, that had no fantasy, no golems, no gin. Um, and they weren't going very well. And a friend of mine suggested that I take a break from them because I was complaining to her about how I just, I, I didn't like what, you know, where they were going. And, uh, she said, take a break, write something else. She knew I love fantasy. Um, and she knew that I loved like the fantastical mixed with, you know, more literary fiction, um, and she said, uh, I want you to, you know, just try that for a bit and then come back. She was, she, she was very prescriptive. She, she basically gave me an assignment. Um, so I came up with these characters and, uh, immediately thought that, um, they belonged in a more historical setting that I've been using for my own short stories. I was like, oh, let's put them in 1900s Manhattan because this is an immigrant tale. And that's, you know, by the, in my mind, it was like the glorious heyday of, of immigration to America. And so I started writing the, this, this short story and it was a much more sort of distanced, uh, you know, narrative distance, like fairy tale voice sort of story. Um, and I brought it, it brought like the first 12 pages to my workshop and my readers said, oh, this is really cool, but we want you to slow down and show us the details. We want you to, we want to see, we want to feel what, what it is to be, um, you know, a, a golem who is new to humanity, trying to make her way, um, in 1900s Manhattan, because that's, that's where the friction is. It's, you know, I have to get a job. What is a job? How do I, how do I, you know, make myself look like a person? How do I fit in on a moment by moment basis? Um, that's, that's where like the tension is. And so I had to, at that point I was like, oh, okay. I, I have 
no idea. I don't know. So I had to go and do a monumental amount of research at the very beginning. And this is about the point where I figured out, oh, this is a book. This isn't a short story. This is a book. And if I want to do it right, I, you know, if I really want to get it, I need to get the details right. And so I, I sort of backed my way into this giant research process. Um, a certain amount of it, you know, I get excited about doing research because I just think it's neat to learn about all this stuff. At the same time, it's it's sort of it's immersive, but it's also um, sort of frightening to be like, OK, what detail am I missing? What what am I going to get, you know, email about? How am I screwing this up? Um, wanting to be as as uh, true to life as possible while also creating a world that has to be my own in some respects. So yeah, it, it, it's sort of like parenthood. It was like, if you know how much work it's going to be, you'll never do it. You just got to do it. <laughs> now you mentioned that you are a fan of the fantastic and, and fantasy fiction. I'm just curious, who were you reading beforehand? And, and like, were these like childhood choices? Like I, I remember in fifth grade, somebody handed me an Edgar Rice Burroughs book, Princess of Mars. And that was the end for me. <laughs> yep. Um, I, I, my first book that I really fell in love with um, was a, a book of Greek myths. Um, wow. I remember it, that's your, you know, I have to say that beforehand, I was also reading the Greek myths. I loved all the monsters and the kind of the heroes and, and the, the, the feet, the shape of the tales. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a book called Myths and Enchantment Tales, and I don't remember who the author was, um, but it was like this this very like slim volume of retold uh, Greek and Roman myths, and the illustrations uh, for the edition that I had were these beautiful like 1920s Art Deco looking illustrations, um, and I just read it over and over and over again, and it was all very boulderized and you know made accessible for children and then you know later take reading the originals is like oh <laughs> that's not how that happened um but it that sort of yeah set the the tone for me and then so yeah so a lot of fantasy my dad got me into science fiction we used to watch the original star trek together um and he got me into asimov and and uh, heinlein and all the big names but um and then gosh what else Oh gosh, all the all the Dragonlance tale, the books, all of the, the you know the bricks from the 1980s and early 90s that had you know dragons and and brooding men on the covers and <laughs> all of those. The uh, Boris Vallejo years. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you just you, it, it all just starts coming back to you, right? You see the cover and you're like, oh god. Um, so yeah, it was just you know highbrow, lowbrow, whatever brow you had. I was I was up for it. That that sounds very familiar. Now, what you've created, I think, is a very literary fiction. I mean, it feels really dense and and, and realistic. And I think um, for me, the the details that you provide are are what really ground it and may and drive the story. So talk about. Um, choosing the details. I'm thinking one thing that you talk a lot about is what people eat, but also just the description of the of the neighborhoods too. 
Yeah, I, well, eating New Yorkers, I mean, they're <laughs> eating all the time. Um, but yeah, so much of what I wanted was to situate the reader in the same way, j just to feel like the sensory overload of New York um, arriving somewhere completely new and having to navigate and being just assaulted with, you know, the, the, the noise and the smells and the, the people, just huge crowds of people. Um, I used a lot of historical photos. Mm. Um, I went like the New York public library digital, um, archive has just, I mean, it's an endless treasure trove of photos of New York, you know, starting back in the 1800s. Um, and you can sort of, if you, if you take enough time to, to navigate the archives, you can find like the same street corner, like, you know, in progressive years and you can see, uh, where everything, uh, you know, where things are changing slowly. Um, I used a lot of old, um, uh, real estate maps that they would have like block by block maps of with lot uh, numbers. Yes, exactly. A block numbers and how tall, you know, how many stories each of the buildings were and whether they had stores on the ground floor. Um, some of the bigger ones, they would have like the name of the, the, you know, who owned it on it. And so I could do that sort of, you know, if I knew where a, a character was walking, there's a lot of walking in these books. Um, if I, So I could like plan their route and, you know, pick out a couple of things just to... Um, uh, just to situate them in, in that neighborhood, in that street. Well, okay. What was the flavor of that neighborhood? Like, um, one of the things in the hidden palace and the new one is, is, um, uh, the, the cast iron district, which was, um, sort of, gosh, I think it's Soho now, at least part of Soho, um, where all of the, the facades of the, of the buildings, the buildings are, are, sort of these giant sheets of cast iron that uh, sort of hang off the front. They were very fireproof. Uh, that was what fireproof, um, you know, building was at the time. And they're they're all molded and they're molded in these, um, you know, with like like Grecian columns and lots of, you know, pediments and, and decorations on the front. And then that's all just painted. So literally still today you can walk up to these buildings. If you have a magnet with you, you can just stick the magnet to the front of the building. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm trying to just, uh, you know, take I, I don't I don't want one problem I ran into with, with writing the first book was my at one point my agent got back to me. He was reading a few chapters and he says like, OK, this is not a walking tour. You are not a guide. You are you are, you know, you're trying to tell us everything. And it was because it's, it's so fascinating to, to read all of this stuff. And then I'm like, try to put in as much as possible. And he's like, no, look for the telling detail. I'm like, OK, OK, OK. I knew that, you know, it's like the things that you have to be told a million times as you're writing. OK, look for the telling detail. And so I would try to pick out, you know, here or there uh, a couple things that would fit the mood or fit, you know, whatever the atmosphere was that I was trying to create. Um, but gosh, there's so much out there to, to glean from that it's like I, I really didn't have my pick. You also do did really well in the last book and in this book in terms of creating the elements of the fantastic, giving them a, a real cultural feel. It's a multicultural fantasy and I think it's very interesting because the, the two cultures both from the Middle East are are, are are kind of interwoven in a way 
Mm-hmm. But but um, they, they both each one feels real. So talk about uh, creating, having created the the setup in the first book, which didn't necessarily you know require a sequel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it felt like you know a really nice novel, this also doesn't necessarily require a prequel, but it extends the uh, the the first novel really in a wonderful way. Uh, talk about um, digging further into the elements of the fantastic. So I think what happened with the <clears throat> the end of the first book, you know, the 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 danger has passed, and and. These two characters have, uh, you know, uh, uh, Chava the Golem and Ahmad the Genie are, try- are uh, sort of very slowly and tentatively embarking on, like, getting to know each other better. And there's a hint at the end of the, the first book that maybe this will blossom into something beyond an alliance that will become something more ro- romantic or personal, at least. Um and so when I when I started out to write the second book, it was like, okay, well, that's you know that's that's my my mission. That's that's my mission statement is I have to you know do that and create a <clears throat> a, a, a relationship arc for them. But what is that going to interact with, and where is the real friction going to come? And it took a while to find it, but. I did know from the beginning that I wanted it to be about assimilation and to look at the the subject of assimilation through these the, this fantastical lens. Well, how do you do that? How do you, you know, take two um, creatures who are very different from humans and, you know, show their progression as, as they're assimilating? And the, the, the way that I... Um, did that was by taking two other of the same creatures and putting them up as sort of mirrors and foils. So in the second book, there is a second golem and a second genie. And the second uh, genie, genie actually, is uh, the female version. Um, She's uh, much more of like the classical sort of... um, uh, genie from uh, like the Thousand One Nights and and like the original you know way going way back uh, folk tales um, and she's much more of an immoral creature um, and she's unhindered she has her full powers unlike Ahmad who is who is bound in human form and on the other side um, there's another golem um, named Nyasala and he is built for protection. He is built to be large and brutish. And he's sort of the image of the, um, you know, the, the quintessential golem story is the golem of Prague from, you know, medieval Prague and, and, and the golem that was built by Rabbi Lowe to protect the Jews of Prague. Um, and that is in the stories of, you know, very uh, lumbering, large, you know, not exactly intellectually gifted um, uh, creature that is, um that that escapes its control and ends up having to be put down basically um so you know and and hava our original golem uh was made to be more human seeming so if i have you know the two of them and, and that um can sort of interact with their opposites um then i can sort of show the reader you know how 
the um, how the process of assimilation into human society has gone for Haban Ahmad and how they are going to react to seeing it's sort of like the idea of like you've been in the U.S. for a certain number of years and then you go back to the old country and now suddenly you're too American for the old country, but then you come back and you're too old country for America. And where do you fit in? And where is, um, you know, how, how, how far is too far? How far, you know, in your own mind is I've gone too far. I have forgotten what I am. And so I really, you know, I knew that I, that was something I wanted to explore. And that was just how I did it was, was through, through the, through the magic, basically. And that is one of the the best reasons and the best ways to use the elements of the fantastic because the fantastical creatures and the, and the inventions of your imagination allow you to externalize turmoil thoughts and whole processes and put them out as plot points what might otherwise just be somebody sitting in a chair thinking not so exciting to read about or watch but mm-hmm. when, it's, when it's actually happening in front of you because you have these creatures that that allow you to externalize all those thoughts it's a you do a fantastic job of that and there's actually a wonderful moment in the book um where uh, the uh, uh, Ahmad is has exactly that confrontation how far have I come away from have I come from what I really was and how what and for him it's it's really it's an existential question because he's Am I, you know, am I no longer uh, a genie? Maybe I'm, uh, now I'm human. So I think you do a great job of using the elements of the fantastic to externalize and make exciting plot points of what you want the reader to take out of this story of immigration. Now, one of the things I I, I really loved about this book, (laughs) I'll confess, was that you do a, a really good job taking the, or an ordinary, what would be a romantic narrative, a story of romance, two people meet, they immediately don't like each other, but then they <laughs> come together and so after some traumatizations. But rather than being a, a romance, it's more like, even when they're intimate, it's more like a platonic friendship. You write like a platonic romance, so mm-hmm. the they, they characters talk more about things and I think that's a really interesting twist could you talk about making that decision oh gosh you know I don't even know if it was a decision it was <laughs> uh, more uh, outgrowth uh, sorry an outgrowth it just <laughs> came out came out yeah. of what you were doing you put the ingredients together and started mixing them and thought you're gonna get a chocolate cake you got a lemon meringue pie <laughs> It, it was about, um, you know, I, I designed these characters to spark off each other intellectually because they're forced together um, because they have, they're the only two creatures in New York who can understand each other in some ways because they are the only ones who are going through the same process of having to disguise themselves as human and, and look at humanity from from the outside, but at the same time, they are completely different personalities. And she is um, very cautious and um, drawn to humans because she wants she's you know built to serve basically, and she wants to help. And he is you know very uh, he's resentful of the fact that he has to fit in, and he 
wants to hold himself apart. And so the two of them together have just in the way that they interact with everything around them draws, you know, is it keeps them at odds with each other and it leads to nothing but arguments between them. And so every <laughs> at some point during the first book, I was writing the first book. I was like, oh, they just argue. This is how they, this is their relationship. This is like their love language, basically. It's just arguing about how, you know, how best to live their lives. I And and that continues into the, the second book, um, but with a more uh, personal feel to it, because at the same time that they're still trying to navigate New York and, and humanity, they're trying to navigate each other, too. And there's that that thing that happens when, you know, you meet someone and you, you know, you start a relationship and you get to know them. And even, you know, as as long as, in my experience, at least, there's all, even, you can know someone inside out and they still feel like an alien. You know, it's it's like, I I know exactly what makes you tick. And it's the same time you completely confound me. And I, and so that was something <laughs> that I wanted to have them extend to each other too, because, you know, on the, on the one hand, they're each other's homes. And on the other hand, it's just still, there's always that bit of discomfort because they are so different. You know, um, I probably have seen uh, too many Hallmark movies more than I would care to admit. (laughs) And when, one of the aspects of the Hallmark movies, my son, observed this actually I think after taking a, a writing class at, in college he said the the part where the couple like something drives them apart and it's clearly artificial and, and, and you know they're going to come back together he goes oh dad they're just going into the cave <laughs> <laughs> and if you ever watch a Hallmark movie and you absolutely know once you hear that that's in your brain you go okay now they're in the cave yep. and, and there's a great part where, where your characters are in, are in the cave and, and I think that overall this novel has a really interesting feel because it, it feels um, I guess the, the closest I could say is it reminds me uh, a bit of Dickens um, in terms of trying to show what happens when you put a whole bunch of very different humans with very different income levels and all sorts of backgrounds in a relatively small place and just let them cook for <laughs> a few mm-hmm. years. Yeah. Yeah, and my the cast of characters is big in the first book. It's big in the second book, too. Um, it was a lot of people to manage. Um, uh, absolutely, but you do have a, a fabulous job because they're all endearing. One of the, the tricks of this book is that no matter who we land with, whose whose actions we're seeing, are, it's, we go, okay, oh, good, it's this one again. <laughs> and, and, and I really love it. Sophia Williams is, uh, or is it Winston. Sophia Winston is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I, 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 she's one of my favorites. Um, she was a minor, a more minor character in the first book. Mm-hmm. I, I invented her in the first book because uh, the genie needed a girlfriend at one point, and so I was like, okay, so, so if he's gonna like set his sights on someone, who's it gonna be? And I decided it was, it was going to be like, uh, he, he only challenge, he would challenge himself to, to win over, um. 
an heiress, like a, a someone who was, uh, you know, clearly outside of his league. Um, he was going to that was who he was going to aim for. And he does. And the but I wanted to make her a character in herself. I didn't want just to make her a prize for him. And so I invented a backstory for her that was, you know, she is someone who is longing to get out of the very constrained life that she has. Um, and so she's in a way just ready to be, you know, and ready and willing to be swept off her feet. This wasn't like he, he, you know, stole her away. She was like, you know, a part of her was like, come get me. Um, and so, you know, she does play a slightly, you know, in the first book, she plays a role near the end, but for the second book, I was, I was so intrigued by her from the first, I was like, okay, so what would she do? She's had this experience where her encounter with Ahmad uh, left her sort of changed. Um, she, she has what she thinks of as like a malady that it's, it, she's like physically altered um, from, from what happened between them. And so she's going to go to the Middle East and, and look for a, a cure for herself. And she just grew as a character in that telling because the, the time span of, of her trip to the Middle East goes from when she's like 19 or 20 to when she's in her mid 30s. And that, you know, she has spent so much formative time over there on her own searching. Um, and it, it changed her in a, a way that I, I hope was <clears throat> um, organic. And you just see her mature and, and, and harden in some respects, but um, also, you know, remain the same as she was. And it was, it was just fun and, you know, tricky work too, but fun to just map out that, that journey for her. You know, one of the things that interested me most was early on, we see story itself become a character who goes through many changes and the import of story on the people around it, how a story, uh, in this case, the story of the genie um, mm-hmm. from the first book has become a story among the the civilization of the genies in this book and how it changes and, and, and according to who's telling it and who's listening to it and when it's being told and that kind of evolution of how story, you know, can be used for many, many things. You know, you can weaponize story. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Talk about uh, making story itself an element within a bigger story, a very much more complex story, because the story that is told it is because it's kind of a fairy tale or, or a warning, you know, a life lesson. Um, it's it's all it's kind of short, and it you know you just change a few elements here and there. But the story it's embedded in is this big, long, you know, very complicated and detailed story. It that came about about halfway through writing the book. And it was one of those things where at some point, you know, I, I had the motivation for <clears throat> for the, the genia for for uh, she takes the name Dima in the story. Um, I wanted her to want to find Ahmad. I didn't want her to just end up in New York the same way he had, because that felt too um 
It felt too repetitive. It also sort of gave up her agency. Um, I wanted her to make the decision to come over. Um, and I was like, okay, well, why would she come? Why would she know about this, this genie uh, who's in New York? And the idea came to me of having it be a story that the djinn had told. Um, after, and he comes back to the, the desert at the end of the first book. And, and you see that at the beginning of the second book from the point of view of, of like a group of child, of Jin children who are watching and listening to, to this, this thing happen. And then that story, they tell their friends and then the story, you know, grows and grows and grows and, and spreads and, and, you know, becomes, it turns into like a myth. And so this is something that this, this genia has heard. Um, and so that is sort of paves the way for her to go to to New York and find him. But at the same time, at that point, I got so interested in the idea of of story and how story changes as it's told and what might she have been expecting from him that um, that is going to either shock or disappoint her when she actually meets the real thing. And that it, it just sort of set off this thought process um, I'd had another uh, story that I tell in the book a number of times, um, uh, the tale of Mount Kaf, which is uh, a um, the, the the homeland of the jinn, the sort of the Garden of Eden of 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 uh, jinn kind, um, and it's this emerald mountain that encircles the earth and holds up the sky. And this is a a, a real tale that's told um, uh, in uh, um, in Arab and, and Islamic uh, myth. Um, and I figured the Jing would have their own version and, and humans would have their own version. And at some point you, you get enough, um, sort of thematic, it's like, it's like a, uh, an event horizon. It's almost like you get enough of a, a thematic angle of like, oh, okay, wait a minute. This is all about stories. And then everything sort of orients around that. Um, <clears throat> and I have, there's a, an orphanage in the book. And I have uh, um, kids telling each other stories or warning each other about things in the basement. And um, and so part of it is like the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that, you know, okay, what was this? Was this originally true? Um, and then what does that get changed into? And how does hearing that story affect you? And how do you change that when you pass it on? And... Um, you know, uh, relating that back to also to the assimilation process of how stories become tales, become legends, become myth as you get farther out and what stays and, and, and you know, what stays the same and, and what changes. And in a way, that's what I'm doing, too, because I'm taking these old, old stories and, and making them new again and, and, and setting them in, you know, different times than they originally came from. So it's... Um, I don't know. It, it's a theme. It's an obsession. It's it's um, it's just something that I like to play with. Now, though, this story is set in you know the near the turn of the of the twentieth century. Um, one sitting here in the twenty first century cannot help but hear about little Syria and, and the visits that. Uh, that Sylvia makes to the city of Homs, Homs or Homs? Uh, uh, Homs, yeah. Homs in Syria. And, and think about what's going on in Syria today. I mean, the, the, I heard the the all about Homs many times before I read it in your book, and I thought that was a really interesting 
creates a kind of an interesting dissonance and the entire book does because it being about immigration in a very different time when immigration was somewhat expected but also i i don't not so much expected as accepted i think and just okay this is going to happen to people are going to come to america we're not going to think of worry about stopping and we're just going to try to figure out a place for them to go so Talk about uh, that kind of interesting dissonance that you create for the reader by bringing up things in, in the past that were are currently a concern of the present, and you know how how that happens for you as a writer as well. Well, a lot of it is through the research, and it's you know, and it, you're right that there there are like these interest there's echoes and, and and dissonant echoes I, I one of the the settings in the um in the the hidden palace is palmyra is the the city of palmyra in the um uh the syrian desert it's it's uh ruins of you know uh mostly you know, roman and pre-roman um and and it's just this huge you know system of of fallen pillars and, and Roman, uh, roads, you know, very wide roads and there's a citadel and it's all crumbling. And while I was working on the book in the beginning years of working on the book, ISIS had op occupied, um, Palmyra and was busy blowing parts of it up. Um, and so that was just really, you know, emotionally painful to be, to be reading about, um, you know, the, the history of, of this city and, and what was left of it while I'm watching on the news. Well, that part's gone, you know, and it, so that was a, 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 a strange and painful sort of confluence of, of history and, 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 you know, current event. Um, but yeah, to a lot of the, the issues of immigration and, Gosh, so much else that's in this book, like like um, the the rise of the labor movement and suffrage and women's suffrage. rights. And, yeah, that, there's a lot of Me Too moments in, yeah, in this exactly. book. And, and I'm and thinking, it, wow, that's just really bizarre. It, it, it's been around for 150 years. And it's it, I, I get the feeling that, you know, every generation rediscovers this stuff. Right. And it's like we're the ones who care about it now. And the truth is that, you know, these issues have been with us for as long as there have been nations and as long as as there have been, you know, civil rights or lacks of them. And it's just a question of how each generation situates it in their particular experience of it. Um, so, you know, immigration, like, it, yes, at this point in history, in, in American history, immigration was pretty much um, free and open, you know, as long as you had enough money in your pocket to make it over and, and you had someone who, you know, I don't even know if you had, I don't think they had to have someone who was willing to vouch for them. You had to like pass the health inspection and you have to, you had to look like you could support yourself and they would let you through. Well, 1921, the Immigration Act of 1921 is when all that got shut down and suddenly it became a lot more um, quota based and, um, you know, you had to sort of prove yourself to come over. And so that, you know, remained in effect and, to, you know, through World War II, 
uh, which is, you know, why so many, you know, Jews had such trouble getting over to the U.S. Um, during the Holocaust. And, you know, you, you really had to, um, you, you know, the, the, the chances were you weren't going to be let in. Um, and so, you know, now seeing it again and with with, you know, the borders and, and uh, you know, refugee crisis and how many, you know, and, and allowing for asylum and so on. And it 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 really is the same stuff all over again. And it's stuff that, you know, we wrestle with um, just continually all the time as as a society. And sometimes it swings one way and sometimes it swings the other. And, you know, it, it's it, it becomes almost like it, it feels like deja vu writing about this stuff sometimes because it's I, I don't I don't understand how historians, you know, people who do this history for a living aren't just out there all the time waving their arms going, people, we <laughs> you think this is new. It's not new. You know, just like every every generation, we think that they believed a thing. But, it, you know, there was one opinion on something. And no, that's just how history was written. You go back and you look and it's 800 opinions about it. And it's the same as it is now. Uh, which is to say that uh, the only people who uh, remember or learn from history are historians themselves, while the rest of us just go about repeating it yeah. endlessly. Yeah. Now, when you said earlier, um, you talked about uh, magnets sticking to to the walls, and that mm -hmm. made me think, uh, talk about your feelings having written the first book, and I'm guessing you probably went back to New York afterwards and walking around and scouting the neighborhoods. And, and just talk about scouting the neighborhoods for where the thing was set. Is there an Amherst building? There is. So the Amherst, or there was, I don't think it's still there anymore because it's part of an underpass. It's part of, it's part of like the, the tunnel system. Like it's, it's like the lead into the, I think the Holland Tunnel, they, they, a lot of what, um, was Little Syria, um, in the fifties was bought up by the city and demolished, um, to create sort of the, the on-ramp system, uh, for the tunnels to Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, so there's only pieces of it that are left. Um, but, you know, a lot of, of the Syrian population had moved to the Atlantic Avenue, uh, you know, neighborhood of Brooklyn by then. Um, so, it, so there, but, but there was some left that got, you know, sort of moved over and built up, but the Amherst building, which is the building that, um, uh, that Ahmad the genie, um, ends up occupying. Um, it was a building. It was a, um, uh, I have no, it was a four or five. It was a five story, um, uh, factory loft that was surrounded by smaller um, uh, tenements. And there was like this, and I, was, I, I found it by looking at, at the, the real estate maps and I'm looking at all the buildings that were, you know, in particular blocks because I wanted to see, I wanted to make it as real as possible. Um, and so I named it the Amherst. I have no idea why I chose that. I think that was just sort of random. But, um, but yeah, there really was an Amherst building. And also... Um, there was the, the orphanage that I mentioned earlier, um, at 136th, uh, between uh, Broadway and Amsterdam, that was a real orphanage, um, called the, um, Hebrew Orphan Asylum. And they built it in like the 1880s and it was an orphanage through the, I think the end of the 1940s. Um, 
and it was uh, for for you know destitute Jewish children uh, from you know mostly from the Lower East Side, um, and they eventually turned to more of a like a fostering model. And, you know, orphanages like the big Dickensian orphanages, you know, fell by the wayside. By the 1940s, it was a relic. Um, but I and so I, I like situated my orphanage where it was. I fictionalized it, um, but it really was there. And now I think it's being used as a, the last I looked, it was a public school. Um, and, and I think the original building is still there. And it's this giant old, like, uh, gothic-looking, you know, red brick with a bunch of gables and a central bell tower. And, and you know, even back then, it, it looked, it, you know, pretty incongruous sitting in the middle of, of you know, the Upper West Side or more, uh, uh, Hamilton Heights. You know, and all these modern, more modern, um, you know, brownstones and, and, you know, slightly more middle class apartment buildings. And then this giant Dickensian thing just sort of sitting in the middle of of, of the neighborhood. Um, so, yeah, that was that was pretty rich that I got to, to play with that and and, um, and create this world of, of the orphanage. Now, you use a lot of languages in this book, besides English, just little phrases here and there, but I'm wondering how much of the iceberg is beneath the surface in terms of learning the languages enough to have your characters use them correctly, but also maybe how that that language informs the the English language in the book. I... I'd set the rule at, in the first book that the two of them, that Chav and Ahma, could understand all human languages. And that was how they were going to communicate, that they weren't going to have to learn how to speak a particular language, especially once the two of them got together, that they would have common, you know, they would have the ability to communicate. Um, and once I've set that rule for myself, well, I got to play by my rule, but I also need to figure out you know, how can I use that? What, what are, what are the implications of that rule? And, and how much fun can I have playing around with that? And the, it, it occurred to me that they would have their own sort of common conglomeration of language between the two of them, that since they can understand all language and they can speak all language, that they would sort of choose bits of it here and there from, from different languages to, to use with each other, um, and that it would be mostly um, Yiddish, um, English, and Arabic, but that they would sprinkle in here and there, like their favorite phrases from other languages. I, I wrote, a, I, I tried writing like a chapter where you actually hear how that works, where I was like trying to write them speaking in other languages and it would change between you know be between phrases between sentences and it didn't work it's the sort of thing where if you see it on paper it doesn't make any sense or it just looks sort of mannered or weird but if you hear it described it sounds a lot more um uh possible it sounds a lot more you know believable um and actually part of how i got to that was from uh, my own family, from my nephew. I have a nephew um, who grew up in Syria. Um, his mom is um, Syrian-American and his dad is Syrian-French. 
and they grew and he was born um, in, well, he, he spent like the, his first years in Damascus and he grew up trilingual. He's speaking English, French and, and Arabic. And he would, when he was like four or five, if he got mad, he would start just rattling off in different languages, like yelling at, you know, whoever had made him mad. And his parents figured out that he was using whatever words and grammar he could to get to the end of the sentence more quickly. Like if, if he, he, if the word was shorter in Arabic than it was in English, he was going to say it in Arabic. He was going, it was just this like, like, like machine fire, blah, 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 blah. And he was like changing languages back and forth. And I was like, Oh, that's how they talk because it, it just suddenly, you know, once you see that, it, it just sort of makes it clearer. Well, of course, if you have the ability to do that and the other person is understanding you, yeah, you're going to say whatever you, you know, you're going to get it out as fast as you can. You're going to say it in whatever, you know, manner or um, idiom is going to either be the most insulting or the most, you know, whatever it is that you, you want to say at the time. Um, and so I, I, I decided that that was how they were going to talk to each other. And that was how they were going to be known. Like the, the, the children of little Syria, you know, sort of poking their heads out the windows in the middle of the night and hearing them argue in different languages and not, you know, and only being able to understand, you know, maybe a third of what they're saying. And that sort of adds to the mystery of who, who is this couple and, and, and what exactly are they saying to each other? This, novel is called The Hidden Palace and there there is indeed a hidden palace in the novel I won't say where or exactly how we uh, find it but uh, um, it's really beautiful when you describe it in words it sounds amazing have you had somebody create it for you uh, in art uh, I had didn't have I actually did it myself I made a model oh. <laughs> wow <laughs> I made a um uh, a paper model. Um, I won't. I won't give away spoilers. Um, I went through like four or five different versions trying to figure out what this thing looked like. Um, this 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 palace, um, and it be, it was really hard to make it something that I could explain without using a lot of technical detail. Um, and so at some point, I had to simplify it down for myself. And I was like, okay, because I need to know how to describe it. I need to know, you know, and you've got characters who are, uh, you know, like a genia who's flying around and she's looking at it from different angles. Okay, so what does it look like? And I, at some point I was like, I, I'm a very visual writer. I have to be able to see it at least in my own head before I can describe it. Um, so I literally went and I took a bunch of cardstock and I made um, a paper model for myself of, of this, like this large building that has all of these different floors. And, um, and I sort of stuck it all together with a pencil through the middle. And at that point it was, it was about like six, six by six by six cube. And at that point I could look at it from different angles. I took photos. I had my, 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 my phone and I took a bunch of photos from different angles and that I could figure out if someone's coming at it from one way, you have like this, this series of platforms and how it's, it, it looks like, um, sort of like moons that are all rotating. Um, and so that was, it's in the closet somewhere. I think it's falling apart. I'll have to put it back together. <laughs> well, 
it's a it, it's a really excellent piece of uh, fantasy architecture, and I think that that it's it's interesting because the book itself, you know, is indeed a is itself about a lot of American city architecture, and New York is of course a huge character in this novel. Shapes every other character. So talk about you know. Uh, writing a, a book where one of the characters is the city itself. Oh, it, there's just so much that you can discover and play with and use in New York. And, you know, it's, there's so many layers on top of layers and, you know, especially looking at it from a cult, the cultural angle of, okay, yes, there's the Lower East Side, but that wasn't a, a, um, a monolithic thing. It wasn't like completely homogenous, you, you, especially getting into the 1910s where I'm, where I'm writing, you had some more established businesses and you had a lot of families that were sort of, you know, making it enough to go up, you know, the, to the, up to Harlem and, 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 uh, you know, there there was migration inside the city and, and, you know, wanting to be true to the history of that as well as use it, like you said, as a character that um, that could describe sort of the, the societal changes that are happening. Um, the, the book takes place over 15 years, which is a lot longer than the first book. Um, and one of the things that happens, it, one of the reasons that Ahmad starts to feel more and more distance from humanity is he just can't keep track of all the changes, all the comings and goings. Um, and, you know, even just a couple of years that I was living in New York, I had that experience. If you come around a corner and you're like, wait, that was what happened. You know, that building is gone and now it's something else. And and how just the city just changes out from under you and it does feel like this living, breathing thing that's growing, you know, on its own terms um, and it doesn't, you know, care what you think, you know, th that was my favorite store. Well, it's gone now. Sorry. You know, it's something else. Um, and how that just keeps you a little off balance in a place like New York. But at the same time, there are still like the touchstones. Um, Central Park, you know, God forbid we should ever lose Central Park. That's, you know, just in so many ways, the heart of the city. And my characters keep coming back to it again and again in the same way that I did when I was living there um, as as like a refuge, as people watching, as, as um, just a way to sort of slow down, but also still feel like you're part of something else. You know, you get to go lie in the grass and look up at the sky with a few thousand other people. And because that's, you know, everyone going out and having that summer experience of lying in the park and, 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 you know, seeing a play or just hanging out. And, um, and so you get to feel like you're part of something larger and that's something that my characters, um, end up doing too for, you know, for better and for worse. And so, oh gosh, I, at some point the city just, I don't want to say it writes itself, but I can't help writing about it. Um, because there is just so much there to use. You've created such a wonderful place and, and it's so immersive for all your characters and your readers. Uh, are you going to return? 
I want to. <laughs> <laughs> easier said I, than done. Easier said than done. Um, I, I don't want it to take another seven years um, or eight years. I, I want to be able to do it a little more quickly next time, if only because I am such a bear to live with in the middle of that process. Um, you know, it, it's my life looks a lot you know, my life looks different than, than it did when I started writing these, you know, I, someone pointed out to me that I've been living with these characters for 15 years. And I, it was just sort of this heart stopping moment of, Oh my God, like, you know, they, I, I know these people so well, I know them, you know, but at the same time, I've got a couple kids now I've got, I, you know, I got to make dinner. I got to do the laundry there. There's, there's other stuff to do. There's other parts of my life I want to live, but I do think, I think to do, to do them justice, I think I want to do one more book. Um, but like you said, easier said than done. And I'll have to figure out um, when, you know, what, what, what time frame that would be of, you know, in, in history and, you know, what, what's left, what's left for them to deal with. I don't want to do a, a retread of, you know, what I've already done just so now we see it again, but in the thirties or whatever. Um, so I, I would need to take some time and really think it out before I, before I sit down and do it. I'm hoping that before that happens, uh, we could see this. We live in a golden age of adaptations. When mm-hmm. No longer do we have to see a 500-page novel uh, turned into a two-hour screenplay where essentially 90% of the novel is dropped. Um, mm-hmm. and have you, it's, and this seems so ideal to be made. Has it, has this, the, have these been optioned yet or? Um, we've had, I've had, uh, two different times options, um, bought on them. Um, and both times they, uh, you know, it's like nine times out of 10 in Hollywood, you know, yeah. the option gets bought and then it's either sits on a shelf or someone tries to do something and they take it around and everyone's like, oh, we're full up right now. Okay, whatever. And the option reverts. So I've, you know, I remain ever hopeful. I think, um, I think it would be really awesome. Like you say, living in, in the, the golden age of ad- adaptations and, Having series, you know, something like The Crown, where you get to see characters over, um, you know, decades, and maybe they get someone new to play someone, um, you know, for for the the sixties instead of the forties or whatever. Um, but you know, I think I, I think people are more amenable to that sort of thing these days, and I think it would be awesome. Um, I'm not, you know, banking on it certainly, um, but I think it would be. I think it'd be fun. I've been speaking with Helene Wecker. Her new novel is The Hidden Palace. Thank you for joining me, Helene. What a wonderful novel. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.